Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me snickting along on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. It's another X-Men X Wednesday here, and we're going to be taking a look at all sorts of mutants. We're going to kick things off with Marvel Unlimited's X-Men Unlimited 13 through 20 before taking a look at New Mutants number 24. I'm going to come back to talk about X-Men Unlimited number 21 for a minute before finishing things out with X-Men Legends number 11 and the return to class. Classic 1980s New Mutants. First up, we're going to talk about X-Men Unlimited number 13 through 20, Paradise Lost. And this was such a great story, and we had such an amazing time dialing into this sort of like, what if Juggernaut led a modern X-Force kind of vibe, that we even brought in Chad from Grey Malkin Pod, which is such a great show. We've had him on before, and we couldn't have been more excited to have him back. We hope you guys enjoy this story just as much as we enjoyed it and covering it. And if you guys like what you hear, you might even like what you see. So don't forget to give us a subscribe over on Twitter at XIsForPod cast. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at Juggernaut, just Juggernaut. I just want to look at Juggernaut. I'm not going to do the rest of the introduction. He looks so hot in this. I just want to look at Juggernaut forever. I'm Nico and you guys can find me trying to get ready for a Juggernaut cosplay on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Mi gente, it's Arturo baby. And yeah, through Sabe, you can find me at Mr. Toy Box on Twitter and Instagram. Hey, everybody. This is uh, Chad visiting from Gray Malkin Lane. So happy to be back with you guys on X's for Podcast. You can find me on Gray Malkin Lane on either Instagram or uh, Twitter. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience. Unlike these supervillains turned heroes, not exactly for hire, and they've being defeated by this dude who somehow is the Mary Sue of all Mary Sue characters. <laughs> well, for hire or for lower, wherever the Unstoppables find themselves, unfortunately we know that there is kind of a, a short end date on where this team can go, because we are so excited for Legion of X here, Oh my goodness. Yes. But before we can even get to Cy Spurrier's upcoming trip straight into the middle of my heart, I want to say a big welcome to a special guest here today. I kind of like to think of the many different X shows. And I've, I've talked about this with Dylan from House of X a million times. I kind of think of us all as like different classic X teams. And like no team is more important than any other team. It's the team that's in your heart. You know what I mean? And so like, I always feel like this is like a crossover event. And it, it just makes me so happy because I feel like, yeah, guys, did you see that time X-Force and X-Factor hung the fuck out? And like, that's how this feels for me. So Chad, please tell us all about your show. And and uh, how cool it is and why everybody that's listening right now should absolutely jump over and listen to that as well. Well, thank you for the welcome introduction. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, Gray Malk and Lane, we are reviewing the X-Men comics from the 60s, uh, kind of one at a time, but we're interviewing a different Marvel professional every week as we do. We're taking deep dives into continuity. We're analyzing things from a queer perspective, uh, bringing in a lot of social justice issues and just kind of nerding out and having a great time. Uh, this week, we have interviews with uh, June Brigman and Roy Thomas coming out. We just did 
did a couple episodes with Jordan White and Steve Orlando. Uh, we are ha- having an absolute blast. I got to interview Roy Thomas yesterday and ask him every 60s nerdy X-Men question I could think of. So yeah, we're just having a really good time. But I'm a huge fan of your podcast as well. Uh, you guys have so much energy and so much fun. And uh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for bringing me aboard. Well, we absolutely love these crossover moments. And I hope everybody goes out and checks out some of the awesome episodes of Grey Malk and Lane. And you'll find an incredible wealth of the material that we discuss here. One of the things that everyone might not realize about our show is that we actually began by covering 70s X-Men. And we made it every appearance of the X-Men or mutants in Marvel from 1975 to 1984. And then what happened was House of X and Powers of Ten. And the allure was just too good to jump forward into Moira's 10th life. So, you know, longtime listeners might remember that this show began on a deep dive. And so I super duper recommend checking out those comics that really built the essential core of the identities of the stories that we talk about today. And it is in regard to those stories that we are talking about today that I am like, I'm like sweaty with anticipation to talk about this (laughs) because number one, I liked the first unlimited story. I was really attracted to Sauron in the second unlimited story and got to introduce everybody to black Mamba. That was phenomenal because evidently none of you had read her blew my mind. So I want to know before we even talk about this unlimited story, how has your experience with this volume of unlimited been on Marvel unlimited? Are you guys digging it? Are you guys not feeling it so much? How have you been experiencing the infinity comic style X-Men process? X-Men green was my favorite. I think it's really fun to see these characters used in exciting ways uh, and it, it makes you want to tune in but yeah x-men green's been my absolute favorite of the bunch i want to say i love that different creators are doing different things with this run and and yeah more of it yeah it's been my revelation over the past couple months that there is so much value in all of the unlimited comics not just the x specific ones i've been fortunate enough to cover a bunch of them for the podcast and I think at this point, I've, I'm pretty close to having read all of them. They are a joy to read. Seeing how people, how artists are working with this new format is really exciting. Everybody finds a way to utilize it differently. The X-Men in particular volume, some of the stories have been not as much of hits for me, but all of them have been really compelling to read and have kind of gripped me. And I do think it's really exciting to be able to kind of play around with the stuff in here and make it a sandbox and worry less about monetization and just kind of to let creators follow their hearts and do interesting things. It's a perfect place for Fabian Nisiesa in this particular run. I think he gets to do some of the stuff that he does best and sort of capitalize on his name and his history with the characters in a way that there's no concern about that competing with anything else that's happening. It's really just kind of lifting the whole Krakoa era up. I've found that I've particularly enjoyed these Infinity comics. I really enjoy the accessibility that they are to readers, to people who maybe aren't the most biggest comic fans, but would like to join and start reading somewhere. I find that a lot of them tend to lean towards genres that are not always as explored in traditional, you know, paper trade comics that we've been covering. So I've been really excited to be able to read things of different genres with these characters that I know and enjoy and love. That being said, X-Men Green wasn't my favorite, but there were plenty of things about it that I really did enjoy and I liked 
liked giving this character a really strong idea and point of view that I think a lot of people would have thrown off to obscurity and having them having a really good role in place in the Marvel world. Now, I'm so eager to this this group of people, right? So like, I'm so excited. I am an awkward Kane apologist, which is frustrating sometimes because there is a real sense of regression on the character. But one of the promises of the Krakoan era is no, no more, no more bad regressions. No. And it really seems to be going forward. We covered the Juggernaut mini more times than there were issues. And I don't know how to explain it, <laughs> but we kept recovering it in bonus parts. It just kept happening. Right. But one of the things that was really amazing was Fabian Nicieza actually reached out and replied to our interpretation. And like, we got a real sense of this story from getting a chance to talk about our criticism of it, like directly back. And, you know, one of the real pleasures for me of that miniseries experience was Cell, And she is so fucking fantastic. I would love to know what you guys felt about the Juggernaut miniseries that Fabian is clearly continuing here in his work on Unlimited. Well, I make no bones about being a Kane apologist. Kane as a character and kind of like the the recurring patterns that we've seen, his, his stabs at, you know, nobility, the cycle of abuse, him being a bully, but, you know, also having been bullied. And anyways, it's just, yeah, seeing a continuation of this character development is so rewarding. But earlier, my one qualm with the mini was, okay, Kane is not welcome on Krakoa, and that's that. And now we're going to do this story with Kane and D-Cell, right? And D-Cell is cool. But at the time, I was like, who the F cares about D-Cell? Give me Kane, give me Black Tom, give me Charles and, you know, Chuck and Kane drama. So I'm really happy now to see Fabian coming back to this and we get there eventually. Right out of the gate, it felt more like a continuation of the Juggernaut mini, right? Juggernaut and his Unstoppables, uh, you know, a little buddy comedy team up with Deadpool who, you know, love him or hate him. I, I think that's a great use of Deadpool. Just, yeah, hats off. And Fabian Nicieza, it, this was a great reminder that he is hilarious. This guy has jokes, like, and sub not all of them land, but when they do, they're hilarious. And I just, I really admire him as a writer. Fabian took this character who has been in this abusive, insane relationship with the god Sidorak for a long time. And the biggest change for me in that mini is he broke that. Juggernaut stepped away from Sidorak and he says, you know, I am claiming this power source from a different way. I don't need to give in to rage in order to have power any longer. And he broke that. And we saw him continue that storyline in X-Men Limited, which is great. Uh, so the thing that was really powerful in the mini is we're seeing Juggernaut kind of adopt a new identity and a new purpose and step away from a life of villainry, but he also is still kind of a villain. He's working with villains for villains, uh, still doing work for hire. We're still seeing him, you know, compromise his identity with Nazis. <laughs> of course he's working for villains. He's working for Charles. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Fabian Nicieza wrote the very first issue of X-Men I ever owned or read and wrote most of the ones that are responsible for my foundational subconscious fully immersed understanding of the x-men so he's definitely on a pedestal for me and to see that he was coming back with a character who depending on how he is used and who uses him can be relatively minor in the x canon i looked at it with just sort of like a oh this isn't what i wanted of course i do this constantly and every time i do i am surprised 
and should just know better and go into things expecting good stuff and believing in the creators that I love. I really enjoyed the series. I thought he made it incredibly relevant to the X-Men and to Krakoa in ways that I really appreciated. I really was interested in Kane's personal struggle with being excluded from Krakoa. And that's one of those things that it's such a key element of what's going on right now in the whole X-Men line. Who can be on Krakoa and who can't? Why some people are allowed, like Kyle and other people aren't. It makes for so many great opportunities for storytelling. And questions were left unanswered in the mini in a way that made me excited for the future and then just totally ready to hit the ground running. So I remember reading the Juggernaut mini and I there were plenty of things I really loved and enjoyed about it. Um, I love D-Cell as a character and I love her introduction into the Marvel comic verse. And I was really happy to not only see her continue to be seen in this Infinity comic, but that she was a character that was wasn't left to the wayside. I understand that there are so many mutants, there are so many characters that deserve a story, and there are so many this and that, and everybody wants to see their favorite character be mentioned or have plot or all these different great things. And the truth is, there's only so many writers and there's only so many people who'd be allowed to be telling stories of the X-Men. So I was really fascinated with a lot of what they were trying to do of what we've been talking about with a lot of characters is that they're trying to bring them into the new age. How do you give them a backstory? How do you give them characterization that fits with a modern era comic book character and so there's a lot of appreciation i have for that comic i think that it was a little bit slow at some points and i don't really understand the plots of is d cell a mutant is she not we don't know he 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 and it's like no she's obviously a mutant i just really i think looking back appreciate a lot more of what did come out of it and what it did create that really helps propel juggernaut into the modern age and you know thinking about ways to move juggernaut forward i think this redesign of juggernaut's look is so clean and fun and yeah i will admit i missed ron garney you know nobody can use an entire coptic black marker on a single page like ron garney can and i i just missed it a little bit because his art is so one of a kind but without question matthew horak's work on this infinity comic while not always perhaps the most defined especially once the color assist for Marcel rosenberg came in for the last few issues really brought the look of this new juggernaut costume somewhere dynamic and exciting. How did you guys feel about this visual rebrand on a character who has essentially looked like an orthopedic sock for the last 60 years? Orthopedic sock, sure, but goddamn iconic. And this is, I I love this redesign so much because it does the right things of, it's it's still juggernaut, like undeniably. It doesn't matter if the last time you read a comic was 1994, you see the new suit and you're like, oh, that's juggernaut, right? They put racing stripes on them. And I love that because it's just such a cool, iconic design. But adding the crimson bands and, you know, Fabian really drove it home in this story, it being inside of Kane, right? Like it, it, the armor coming from within him and not something he puts on and he's got the, you know, it's coming from the crimson bands and there's the gem of Sidorak, but you don't know where it is. Like, I love that all of that has just been kind of clarified and it's like an internalized power source. It makes him feel like more like a superhero rather than somebody just wearing a costume. Yeah, it's certainly recognizable as a juggernaut costume. And that's really obviously important. The, first thing I thought 
when I saw it was how much it reminded me of some of Cyclops's costumes over the past few years. And I love that because I do think, I mean, I, well, now we know we're going to see Kane become a bigger part of Krakoa. And so getting a design that visually is reminiscent of some of the looks that we're seeing on the X-Men is a really good way to tie him to them and sort of giving a hint at what his future is going to be. It's really interesting to consider the art style. I mean, every artist approaches this differently, but when you're watching artists draw for the Infinity comic format, where it's meant to be scrolled down through, I think it's a completely different visual style that has to be used rather than the printed page. Horak, it seems like, was kind of drawing page-by-page style, but then it was put into this format. It comes across as kind of an interesting read as you're scrolling through, because it seems like individual pages and panels rather than the scrolling effect that we've seen in a lot of the others like uh you know juan ferez on uh on spine tingly spider-man as, as an example the human adaptoids use of powers i didn't think was super effective it seemed really complex and clunky and it was almost the text boxes that had to explain what was happening so i didn't love all of the art but juggernaut's portrayal and and the cleanness of his costume i actually really liked i do agree with you on the superhuman adaptoids visual representation was a bit of a mess i did appreciate that it's almost like we got little snippets of data pages which have become such a you know iconic like piece of this post hawk pox era in those little text boxes it wasn't even a, you know attributed to sage or, or whoever it was that was monitoring that but it just kind of felt like like that kind of information he didn't need all of the superpowers you know a hundred superpowers like we could have done that with a with a handful and i think it would have been a little cleaner but i do appreciate that fabian just kind of leaned into the absurdity of it. In earlier renditions of comics, the design, I think, works really well. It's very uh, simplistic. It kind of tells you everything you need to know about Juggernaut. He was this giant big brute who had this helmet that uh, is a little um, interesting shaped, but it does work in making him stand out. But with so many different characters introduced in comics over the years, I do think his costume and his look did need to be updated a bit to help, again, bring him into the modern era. What about Juggernaut as a character makes him stand out that a writer would want want to say okay i want to use him what about him as a character can you do as an artist to put your specific take on him and with his old costume and his old look i don't really know there's so many different ways you can innovate it but at least with this i like the idea that he can control his costume so if any writer does want to use juggernaut they'd be like right now this is what he's using right now this is how he feels it's his suit his uh his you know bands of sidorak he can do what he wants when we were doing the juggernaut trial as well it really surprised me he's had actually more than like 20 costumes over the years uh, this is a really clean design on one that's been updated by a lot of different artists. And it's that sort of sense of update, the kind of renewal that I think that Fabian Nicieza tried to roll with to get this series moving. You know, I feel like when we covered the Juggernaut series last year, it maybe didn't have the same fan reaction that I would have perhaps expected for Juggernaut, who always seems like he's got like a really strong fan base. So to see the continuation of this come through in Marvel Unlimited was definitely pretty exciting opportunity. I love getting to see D-Cell return, and by starting the story off with Juggernaut on a goodwill mission that led into something bigger, it immediately set Juggernaut up as a good guy. Sure, he's doing it for money, but he's saving a young woman. From there, by giving us Deadpool, who, I'm a big Deadpool guy, like, I half the time record these shows wearing Deadpool gear. Uh, Deadpool was not my favorite, Wade. This this is not my Wade. Wade, my Wade's a little bit more soft, and, you know, I, I wasn't thrilled. But ultimately, by giving us Wade, 
by and you know I do appreciate the laughs about Nazis but you know in Europe you literally can't say the word it has to be censored because there are still people alive who remember the genocide so there's even like whole different forms of marketing for the films that include Nazis uh, for Europe because the wounds are still alive there so you know to an extent I do appreciate the humor there but by having a Nazi again Kane's a better guy so there was definitely an intent to stack the deck with people who from the start make Kane the better man there's two different storylines in the Incredible Hulk where he works for Nazis and that's one of the few things we found irredeemable about him but here he is uh, out loud saying yeah I, I don't want to work with Arnim Zola but it's the only way to get the bad guy so I got to it was like, it was like no not another Nazi story man come on <laughs> Yeah, as a um, Jewish person, I'm always a little skeptical about the use of Nazis in Marvel. I mean, I completely understand where it comes from. Writers generally these days do a good job of on-panel, in-speech bubbles, making it very clear that the Nazis are the bad guys. But when the humor comes into it, no matter how good the writing is, no matter how funny it is, it becomes one of those things that is a little too easy to make light of. On top of the fact that there are always characters who the fact of the matter is they worked for the Nazis, including Mr. Sinister. And reckoning with that is always difficult. I love the Marvel Universe enough to not make it a huge deal, but it would always be my preference to move a little further away from that. That said, in this case, the humor really does make clear that, you know, Arnim Zola is a horrible person and, you know, even Wade in his own way does better. Juggernaut certainly does better. And I think it's important that we see them in roles that are at least adjacent to heroic, despite the fact that their money might be coming from certain places or their collaborations might be coming from certain places. There are so many other amazing characters here, like Texas Twister. (laughs) I did not know was the hottest motherfucker fucker on the planet and i i did not know i needed an exotic dancer that looked just like texas twister preferably same name and i'm sure it's a move he has too And there's something about the amount of silly sort of inclusions in here. I don't know if anybody caught it, but one of the 100 powers that the human adaptoid has is Equinox. No, I totally missed that. The character from the Marvel team up with Iceman. With Iceman and Johnny Storm. And Johnny Storm slips on some ice and goes, who did this? It has to be Iceman. And Iceman's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And at the team up and beat this guy named Equinox who fell into the sewer, who later then got into it actually has an actual backstory i looked this up he became a slightly prominent character in later runs so deep cut deep cuts this was a lot of fun for the number of deep cuts i myself didn't actually know anything about quicksand personally so i did notice though in your guys comment about how you felt about human adaptoid i felt like there were times quicksand also had that sort of look where she was almost messy in her presentation and i wondered if that was a convention of the art for you guys as well i sort of took it as like we're going with an indie kind of rough 90s style and i wonder if some of that gets lost in the hd quality i mean speaking of getting lost 
lost. If I have any, you know, criticism about this, it's what happened to Quicksand? <laughs> because she feels like... Uh, like she got when, dead, when, right? When Primus is, you know, knocked out of commission, it's like, oh, no big. But Quicksand was, you know, a character with agency and personality and whatever. And then her powers get absorbed and seemingly her whole light. I don't know if she's even still alive or what, you know? That was like my one thing that it was like, she's a character and, and then it becomes, you know, Deadpool and Juggernaut buddy comedy, which I was okay with, but just like a little acknowledgement of like giving a damn about her would have been cool. I definitely agree. You know what character did make an appearance and I appreciated it? Letterer Eisner winner, Chris Eliopoulos found his way <laughs> into this fucking book. And, you know, Chris Eliopoulos is famous not for just being a world-class letterer, but for being a, an exquisite cartoonist with his book, Cowboy. And it was really kind of cool. We on this show are freakishly obsessed with, like, letterers! So, uh, oh my gosh, we've been so excited about talking about the book. It would be silly for me not to mention that the book was properly written by Fabian Nicieza, with art predominantly by Matthew Horvac. However, Rochelle Rosenberg did come in with colors on the final three issues. The whole thing was lettered by VC's Joe Sabino. And that is to say, we love letterers on this show. So seeing a shout out to like the lettering master, uh, Chris Eliopoulos is just excellent. Made me really happy. And you guys are right. I'm, I'm being a little hard on Wade. I think I feel like Wade was in some really cool places in his last run. And I am perhaps perturbed that Kelly Thompson's exquisite Deadpool is just being kind of shrugged off and it's not that this didn't acknowledge it and like what the fuck did I want him to talk about going home to play with Jeff like I'm not saying like well, I guess I'm just nervous can't. She's, he's at Kate Bishop's apartment yeah I, I just really loved that series and it ended so unceremoniously. And in fact, of the Deadpool 30th birthday, we didn't love all of those stories either. So it's just, I've, as a guy who Deadpool's pretty hard, I've felt maybe a little downtrodden in the last year. Yeah, I had Deadpool black, white, and red. I couldn't get enough people interested on this show to cover it. <sighs> legitimately you guys were right i was a little too hard on the deadpool here because as you guys have pointed out a number of charming deadpool appearances how did you guys feel about the nature of the team up the sort of evolution of the foregone conclusion yeah we knew he would work with deadpool but how did you guys feel about seeing these two come together deadpool felt like an afterthought to me i mean ultimately his power and his cancer are what defeated the villain and he you know it was funny seeing him tease rubbermaid i suppose but like a uh, 40 other characters could have been used in his place it, it didn't feel like a deadpool story to me if i'm honest i had the same vibe it just felt like like a deadpool team up which i think sells that's my favorite deadpool is when he's somebody's kind of like comic relief i think is when he's at his best so yeah i, I mean i'm not i'm not like a super hardcore like deadpool head so i guess that's that's where where the you know your mileage may vary comes in it's like you know some people love the gag and can't get enough of it and some people are just you know can see the joke and not laugh at it and not be into it and you know and that's cool speaking of gags that i can't get enough of i love anytime somebody does utilize the marvel infinity format and while i definitely agree with you guys that perhaps that first two issues especially what looked like it could have been possibly pixel degradation from over enhancing an image to make it fill the page when it should have really been a smaller panel drawn at a different size right other than a few places that looked a little pixely in the first issue i felt by the fourth issue the fourth and fifth issue with the ship crashing 
crashing and Juggernaut flying through the air, there felt like an intentional downward momentum that didn't reflect a page-turning comic, but rather reflected sort of that that Infinity experience. And while I do agree that it did seem perhaps like, in this case, an afterthought that it came in so late into the series, I have wondered if a number of series that they were concerned wouldn't see, as Arturo was talking about before, the quality of shipping units necessary to print a book that they said, hey, even if it's not going to sell 35K because the market's different now, there's still a market for this story. And I really think there is a value to that sort of, hey, let's not cancel it, let's adapt it. And if that is what happened here, awesome. And if not, if they just took a while to get their beat, it ultimately did work for me as I did feel like the pacing did pick up. After the sort of setup of we have to get back Wade's urine, sperm, toenails, urine, blood, hair, (laughs) urine, skin, urine. Oh my God. After that whole bit, which I desperately now need to hear Ryan Reynolds say, I found myself really shocked that there could possibly be three more issues of this, which is when the pivot to Krakoa happened. And I was so happy for the pivot to Krakoa because it reminded me about the promise that they had made to us with Krakoa earlier in the story. That earlier promise, of course, being Black Tom Cassidy looking oh so cute with Juggernaut. And I actually, I was like, I would love to see Rubby and D-Cell and Black Tom and Juggy go on a date. Like, I just think that would be really cute. How did you guys feel about that moment with Black Tom? I have to imagine, Arturo, you are such a Black Tom juggernaut shipper and I I could not possibly blame you. There's so much there. Well, I mean, simply put, they are husbands. And uh, so, yeah, that just joy to my heart. When Kane and Chuck are telepathically talking, you know, Fabian again establishes Kane's suit, Kane's rules with the helmet on. He can now tell telepathically still you know communicate with with charles but just kind of that moment of you know hey what the fuck you you invited all of these villains but you know drew the line at me like that sucks and and charles saying yeah that does suck you should have been allowed you know from the jump uh that was cathartic to me so when when he was like i needed to wake somebody up i was hoping of course that it would be black tom and black tom was going to you know get krakoa under control because we saw the the island who walks like a man kind of, you know, or sleepwalks like a, like a menace rather, you know, under the sway of, of the super adaptoid. So that was my only thing is I could have done with a little black Tom at the end there, but you know, I, I love that it was D cell. I love that D cell is her own fully formed character. I love that juggernaut has this, you know, young girl that he's taking care of. It's very, you know, wolf and cub. It's very, you know, the Mandalorian. It's very Logan. It's, I, I like that he's, it's even siren and black Tom. It's a promise due. I really love it. Well, see, I think with Siren, that was more a case of my two dads because it was Siren and her Uncle Black Tom and and Uncle Tom's good friend came. (laughs) About a third of Juggernaut's crimes for a long period of time were him either trying to do something nice for Black Tom or him trying to uh, like get him a gift, you know, those types of things. Or when Black Tom got like the tree virus stuff, uh, Juggernaut committed a bunch of crimes to try to get like funding or resources to fix Black Tom. Like a huge piece of his history is just him serving Black Tom, which was fascinating when you pack it all up. 
connect. Like they are like it's not a reach. They're I know it might sound like a reach. Connected. You don't have to look that deep. You can literally look at earlier appearances where Juggernaut literally jumps off the cliff of a mountain to go save Black Tom because he was defeated by the X-Men when they were trying to go to Cassidy Castle. Black Tom was like, I own this castle now. And Sean's <laughs> like, but it was left to me in the will. And he was like, but I bought my big beefy boyfriend. And then Sean was like, well, my girlfriend's out here, but here are my, all my other lovers. And then, you know, Nightcrawler became invisible and they saved the day with the little elves that happy living in the castle. I think what we're saying is because now we have textual, vaguely, Scott and Logan, we can move subtextual Juggernaut and Black Tom to the forefront and get them gayed next. Well, and the fact of the matter is Nicieza has been somebody who has confirmed his belief that they are a couple. So his being on this book, it was the first thing I thought was, you know, if if we're going to see Black Tom, he's going to treat them as a couple. I actually thought he was a little more subtle with it than I was expecting, but this is his realm. He was he is one of the people to write them for a long time and to really establish some of the beats of their relationship. So I was really pleased that he wasn't pulled off of it in such a way that it was a very obvious reading. He didn't have to hold back, really. My understanding is Ben Percy's got some plans for the two of them in an upcoming issue of X-Force. Oh, great. We'll get to see at least something addressed. Who knows if they'll, you know, make it canon, but... I wonder how directly we'll see the events of this reflected in Ben Percy's work because Ben Percy is taking Deadpool over to Wolverine and X-Force still has Black Tom and so there's you know a lot of room for these characters to appear especially with juggernaut over in legion of x there's uh there's room i'm pretty excited i i would love to see percy take some of these threads because it doesn't always seem like fabian nicieza is looking to come and extensively play in x-men as it is you know he seems like a guy who likes to have his hand in a lot of things and it seems oftentimes like if you work in the x office you can work in the x office and sleep those are the two things so you know i do recognize recognize his occasional hesitance to jump back into this fray but it's really cool to see other writers interacting with these characters especially because once we get on Krakoa that's a pretty decent number of characters that we interacted with I was glad to see Fabian Nicieza get to play with Conan and Betsy as two separate characters for a moment as a guy who I'm sure never really you know that whole era between him and Scott Labdell you know they never really knew what they took on and then were interpreting and then you know the layers that would get added to it it's really cool to kind of get to see him full circle get to write these two characters as separate women both doing something you know to help save the day i thought that was a really cool touch and it felt very in line with his love of referencing earlier work that never really got a follow-up well and to note what you said before we're reading the x-books at a time when black tom and juggernaut and fucking cassandra nova are on x-men teams it's 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 a great time to be reading we touched on the warden for a moment and he becomes the human adaptoid. I was shocked by this character because I felt he was so similar to the antagonist of X-Men by Dugan. And at the same time, I thought that a lot of the threads that echoed through this, the infiltration of Krakoa, and even specifically some of these characters were represented over in the pages of X-Force as well. So this felt very much like a parallel narrative to a lot of the themes being explored in the X-Men universe right now. And I wondered, how did you guys, had you guys noticed that vibe that there's this sort of parallel construction or how did you guys feel about that? 
I definitely noticed it myself. I guess I personally found it more so like the idea was the joke of using, you think it's this character, but it's actually this character's powers. Stuff like that, that I feel like the inception was, can we do this but make it funny? And I don't know if it was a really fully fleshed out character or if this Marco saving Krakoa, you know, by defeating the human adaptoid, I feel like it wasn't as unique of a story as it could have been that really would have helped cemented the idea that, you know, maybe Juggernaut does have an actual place on Krakoa because I feel like anybody could have done this. They just needed D-Cell. Interesting. I kind of read it as like, yeah, anybody could have done this, but Juggernaut did it. And so like, interesting, because like for me, I didn't care that the warden was super not inspired. Like he was just a bad guy. I didn't care. He was just the means to seeing Kane kick ass. And I just really didn't need him to be a super fleshed out character. I thought just getting to see Kane be a hero was enough for me. I'm gonna note, Fabian covered all his bases, right? The warden, in order to be a credible threat, had to be able to overcome the threat of Krakoa himself. He's got the plant powers to counter the island. He's got the, to the telepathy to knock out all the mutants. So in order to make Juggernaut and Deadpool save the day, you have to counter a whole nation full of superpowered people. So Fabian covered his bases, but ultimately the human adaptoid is uh, is kind of a forgettable villain, and I was kind of glad he was dead by the end. There was not a lot of depth. He was just revenge-based, kind of hateful, blech. I didn't care for him much. I actually think he had less character development than Primus, who was literally like a character made of silly putty. But I'll give him this. He was surprisingly hot when he stole a <laughs> human passing. Like he was. Yeah, he looked like. Hot. I thought he was Kane and at one point. He looked like yeah, Kane. I, I was like, okay. And I mean, what's been established since day one of the Krakoa era is that people are coming for Krakoa. They are coming for mutants. They both hate them, but also don't want them somewhere where they don't have access to them as needed. And I think it's not, we haven't hit the point yet where another random person who's either trying to nab mutants or attack Krakoa or destabilize things, we haven't quite hit the point where those are like, oh, it's one too many because it's really believable. And they all have similar, you know, in universe understandable motivations. And I think what will be interesting is down the line when we have this really long list and the citizens of Krakoa are thinking like Age of X timeline, like we are just constantly assailed from outside our walls and we're just trying to love and take care of each other. So I think there's a way in which this repeated theme and this kind of, you know, it's threat number one coming to attack the island or it's threat number six coming to attack the island. It, it hasn't gotten tired and it does sort of <clears throat> create a timeline and an expectation that this can't continue forever. Well, Krakoa is now a nation right just like latveria or madripoor we have the whole through the whole x-men infinity run we have uh, that being brought up we have mutants who were kidnapped by aim and sold out right you've got to save rubbermaid but we don't want the mutants to go because that could start an international incident or when when nature girl blows up the refinery and there's people killed suddenly we've got to get her back so we can face justice and avoid an international incident here's this billion dollar lawsuit so that theme of the country playing into it is really interesting too that's a new thing for mutants themselves yeah you know you said arturo 
sure that you're so happy to see them move forward Juggy's narrative. And I am too. And Jonah, you said you wish that it had been a bigger event that moved forward. Like, oh, look at this big thing. And it was Juggernaut. And now forever, that moment where they said, no, Juggernaut can live on Krakoa is going to be referenced. And it's going to be referenceable. And it's going to become part of the psyche of the discussion of Krakoa and Krakoan politics. Whether or not this is like the big deal story, the Juggernaut Black Tom stuff got some coverage. And I think that this was a move on Fabian Nicieza's part to properly seed the... No. To properly (laughs) insert... No. Um, This was Fabian Nicieza presenting himself. I'm not getting there. But you guys get what I'm saying. Breeding? Sorry. (laughs) Fertile breeding grounds. I'll hit stop, but only after you do one more show plug, Chad. Tune into Green Milk and Lane this week. The June Brigman and Roy Thomas interviews are coming out. Next week, we've got the trial of Quicksilver coming up. We've got an episode with Ariana Marr coming up. We're having a ton of fun. Hey everybody, Nico here again. New Mutants Every Month has more emotion packed into it than some whole hardcovers could ever hope to have. This is such a landmark emotional series that Marvel delivers month after month. I mean, you know, with a book like this, it makes a lot of sense that Rod Race, who does such incredible work, would need months off here and there and fill in art. But every single time, it's always an incredibly rewarding experience. And we hope you guys enjoy it. Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of X's for Podcast. I'm Nathan, you can find me online at Desiree Away on Twitter. That's right, you can find me on Twitter at Desiree Away, like Desiree in the Age of Apocalypse. And I'm Stephen, you can find me on Twitter at Stephen of Wonder and on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star Group. Hey everyone, I'm Jake, they, them. You can find me on Twitter at Omega Sentinel, O-H Mega Sentinel. And hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at Howdy Duda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And hey, that makes me Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Bento. You can find me over on TikTok, Instagram, and yeah, it's all over the place. Come start a conversation, and hopefully you will survive this experience, unlike my tear ducts. Oh my god. He's back. He's back. He is. So we, we've got resurrections. We've got a totally different art look. We've got people in the Green Lagoon. We've got a cheerful reunion. I guess that means we're talking about New Mutants 24. New Mutants 24 is written by this fantastically talented Vida Ayala. The artist is Danilo Beirut. Dan Brown is our color artist. BC's Travis Lanham is our letterer. And got tom muller on that overall design so let's start with the big change in the credits rob reyes isn't on this issue and he's done some amazingly Sienkiewicz type art throughout his run of it how are you feeling about the change for this issue in the artist this for, for me it's like it's very it's very on and off some characters seem like spectacularly off model in the way that i imagine them but like there's other things that i really appreciated about this i particularly like the way rain is drawn in this i like how danny is drawn i like i like that her nose is like kind of like large and different and not drawn as like very thin and shallow like it often is uh I it's, that was a fun it's much more traditionally native american mm-hmm. which i agree i yeah. think it's yeah better representation i think there's a lot of that in here where people got less like stereotypically 
like Caucasian features throughout. And I appreciate seeing that. Uh, I think Enole looks like a hunk. He's like weirdly like awesome looking. <laughs> um, the change in art was a bit jarring to me and Madeline Pryor. A, you could have updated Madeline's outfit. She does not have to keep wearing that same ass outfit that literally devised gravity, <laughs> physics, good taste, and logic. I gotta say, even in over-sexualized costumes, that's that's an amazing costume. It's an iconic look. As a woman, I'm really tired of seeing it. It's, mm-hmm. it's just so we recognize her as Madeline Pryor. If they had stuck her in a green flight suit, we might have recognized her as Madeline Pryor. In her in that green flight suit last issue. When she was resurrected, that was amazing. Oh, gosh. That's right. <laughs> Why didn't we keep her in that then? Uh, she wants to change. Yeah. Well, the flight suit also does kind of represent a time when she didn't know who she really was. Mm. So I could see her not loving that look either. I think it just means it's time for something new for her. Absolutely. I think Madeline should get an update. I yeah. I don't think she has to like necessarily cover up. I don't think that's a thing that she has to do. I also don't need her to be like mostly naked all the time. Like I think there's a happy medium there that would serve the character regardless because like i like that that's a part of her character is that she is extremely aggressively sexual is part of her relationship to havoc and it is hilarious every time but yeah obviously it does not need to do this it's like the under boobage to me it is the fucking under boobage correct i i agree with you i think it's amazing that she is hypersexual i just think that you know it was such a drastic change back in the day from the pilot's outfit to this full skin bearing look and then you know she's just it kind of it feels like the artists and even writers sometimes still don't give her the res- the same respect that the x-men themselves refuse to give her she well, never gets help mm-hmm. yeah she, she never gets help from the x-men yeah. or the artists and it's just it's hurtful mm. well that yeah and then like five years time i would love to see a compilation cover with all of madeline's different looks but if yes. you keep giving her the same look we never get that cover and that pisses me off right i will admit i actually loved the red queen look because it was still sexual mm-hmm. which you know does touch upon like where she is in her life but at the same time you know she was way more covered up and it proved that covered up can still be very sexy which brings me to magic <laughs> i still think magic's best costume was actually her phoenix five costume uh that's pretty good that's that's probably i i honestly would love to see her in her like mystical armor more often i felt yes. like when she's not in control of her power yeah. she should just be wearing the mystical yes. armor all the time i not do totally agree actual mystical armor yeah the silver one yeah, yeah i love it so much i actually her help so i I wish she would almost go the way of Jean Grey because her Hellfire Gala outfit oh, with those oh, beautiful yes. horns, oh, like mm. that was just magnificent. She looked yeah, really cool. like yeah. the Sorceress Supreme of Limbo, you know? Mm-hmm. Here she just looks like an edgelord to me or like an edgelord's take. <laughs> she totally <laughs> is an edgelord, you know? She is. That's, that, yeah, that's she, she means it and she literally lived in limbo if anybody's allowed to to feel the way that she does it's her it's yeah. just she never had to dress like this right 
Yeah, maybe she doesn't have to literally have this costume for the rest of her life like it's been, but yeah, I don't hate it. Well, I get the sense that, you know, with this upcoming arc really dealing with magic and with Madeline Pryor, hopefully, you know, one of the things we'll see out of it, out of whatever advances of their narrative come, we'll see some new clothes. Yeah, I always hope for new clothes, like seriously, we should get more of that. So we start on this beautiful scene between Richter and Magic in the Green Lagoon. So what was everybody's take on this scene? It was an interesting point of contact, I thought, you know, having these two mutants who are also kind of enmeshed in sorcery, talking about the potential for mutant sorcery. You know, I think it's, I think Magic is right that like mutant circuits as a form of power and community building offer something to this next generation as, the, as they're kind of learning about their identities, as they're learning about how they can support one another in this new Krakoan era. I was a little confused why Magic was really opening up to Richter as a person because mm. they really share, they haven't really shared a lot of page time mm-hmm. about someone who's really in her inner circle of trust and for someone who you know does keep herself as guarded as liana does i thought i thought it was a lot of like personal disclosure to someone who she was just sitting with yeah <laughs> yeah no i'm i'm with you yeah i actually kind of wished it was karma yeah mm. or so- someone on the team yeah is it bad that i didn't realize that was richter at first <laughs> oh yeah until like she said like his name is like mentioned i didn't mm-hmm. realize it was him either uh that uh, i say i say that's but... actually a good thing because you know i've always thought you know richter was supposed to be but you know more and he's always been drawn a little bit light and, and very mm-hmm. kind of european featured so when she said it, i was like oh oh my god yes this was a good change this was a change that i could actually get behind and you know what's weird about that is that they were both new mutants you know like the original new mm-hmm. mutants it's just that i think that inferno happened like before, before richter yeah. joined like he right joined before. immediately after yep. mm-hmm. yeah he was right. still with x-factor uh In through inferno. Yeah. yeah and then so, like, joined new mutants after the that. moment she became a little girl again he became her teammate and she <laughs> left so, yeah that is such a strange transitional point but they do have connection through friend groups so obviously you would imagine off panel they would have maybe talked and maybe just because mm-hmm. we haven't seen it doesn't mean it happened and, and also and also they do have the connection through mutant magic like mm-hmm. you know apocalypse had taught richter so much about mutant magic and richter's getting more into it and Ileana's like the queen of mutant magic right so well yeah. she's the queen who is a mutant who's also magic like <laughs> there's, there's a I'm, slight difference right she's sorceress supreme up, right this does set yeah. up yes. them to work on magic together more so i think mm-hmm. that's the whole thing yeah. yeah yeah i mean i i also did as much as i wished it was karma i actually took it uh as kind of uh it was him because it was a shared trauma among shared people that they know mm. so i did like it and it was nice that they did specifically talk on uh, their mystical inclinations a mm-hmm. bit. I had strong opinions when I first like, oh, he's a, he can use me. Really? <sighs> right, yeah. After a couple of issues, I kind of understood, oh yeah, they're they're doing this because yeah, his powers are kind of hard to work into things and they needed to give him a more important role. So this was a, a good way to go without, you know, making it the same story over and over again. Yeah, and, and the druidic abilities are close Close enough to his original powers that mm. it's not the biggest transition. Yeah, uh, we get several vignettes wrapping up the previous arcs that we've seen in New Mutants. Really overdue to see a uh, emotional reunion between Rain and Danny. I do love it's page four of digital. That first glance at Rain, you see her sitting on the rocks, mm. and that calls back to New Mutants one where 
Shannon, Rain were talking at the rocks there too. What kind of feels did this bring up for y'all? It was a long time coming. It was really nice to kind of tie those loose ends together because I think they've been having that we really need to talk, but we're not going to talk, but we really need to talk, but we're not going to talk for a while now. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of nice that they actually had them talk about the internal struggle that they're both having. It gave me a lot of warm feelings. It was nice to see these two have their little moment. This whole issue is just a lot of like really touching reunions and like wrapping up of stuff but this is something that has been going since new mutants issue one right Mm -hmm. and it is always so nice to see these two have emotionally intimate conversations i also thought it was some of the best art in the issue well there's some promise for the future too as they're kind of trying to figure out what's going on with tear i actually was surprised that that got brought back in i feel really bad for her always and i just want to not have to constantly feel bad for her totally Uh, Um, I didn't, back in the day, I wasn't a huge fan of the pregnancy arc and this, I I still don't understand the separating into five wolves thing um, (laughs) because it's just, it just doesn't make sense to me, but it is what it is, I guess. (laughs) Meanwhile, the rest of the book I fully accept, but sure. It's like Um, a reverse Voltron. I'm glad that Vita is bringing it back because I think a huge issue that I have with Xbox in general, well, with Marvel in general and how they handle pregnancy is that it seems to constantly be in some way traumatizing for like every woman (laughs) involved and this feels like Vita is like trying to touch upon this as delicately as possible they're very intentional with the seeds that they plant and I feel like this feels like something that they're really trying to nurture and grow to get rain past that trauma because I do believe that they're going to bring Tyr back. If they do bring him back, it raises some questions about, you know, he's a, he's part mutant, part like Asgardian wolf. That gives another sort of like threaded connection to another part of another corner of the Marvel universe and another kind of cosmological death question. Yeah, that's true. I just, I feel like (laughs) that just just opens up a new story arc. I'm just saying. (laughs) I like options. We have have Danny for that. I guess okay. I that does potentially come off very interesting to me. I just uh, I that can't end happy for Rain, and I love Rain. So but Rain has had some of the yeah. worst stories, like oh, from yes. from being genotioned to like seducing an underage student yeah. to like that whole pregnancy where first she was like Richter, it's yours, and then she was like, no, no, it's just kidding. Sorry, gay panic. <laughs> It's a wolf baby. I like that in this new mutants book, Rain is really trying to support the kids, not always succeeding at it, but like you see that she's really trying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think she does need a win. She's taking a lot of L's. It's time trying to see. really hard not to hurt students. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I complete I do completely agree with that. This looks like very intentional act on Vita for them to put this in there and start addressing some of the stuff that Rain has had in her past was questionable and maybe maybe Vita they'll help us be able to move on from that as a character for her and see where she can grow to. Ayala is a very smart and very talented tightrope walker. Yeah. I, I'm entirely convinced especially given how this played out with Kosmar in this issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, Vita did a fantastic job in, in my opinion with this. Kosmar has been one of my favorite things in New Mutants and it's crazy to remember that Kosmar is from the Ed Brisson run. Yeah, has taken on such an important an important part of the entire story of uh, Ayala's New 
Union's run to the point where I feel like it has been Kosmar's story for me anyway. It's deeply affecting and it's full of mistakes from characters we otherwise love who are not mm-hmm. listening because maybe they think that they've got it all figured out now. There, there were a lot of people who didn't understand and had their own perspectives and thought that those perspectives would be everybody's uh, because that's what they're used to thinking. Mm-hmm. And it was really great to see that play out and how Kosmar responded to that and how her friends came to her defense and helped her kind of like get more comfortable with who she was. And I, I'm glad that now she's getting to she's getting to have the body and the appearance that reflects who she feels herself to be. And Absolutely. Is, yeah. And it's great that Mask gets to give it to her, actually. Yeah. Like, I really oh, generous like cool doctor guy (laughs) i am so blown away that mask in this current era is becoming one of my favorite characters in the background why do i like mask i know so good I thought the whole arc of Cosmar and the Lost Kids was really beautiful. Like having these kids explore, you know, how they related to their bodies, how they were relating to each other and make some make some decisions, take some agency about how they wanted to express themselves. I thought Cosmar and No Girl's decisions in this issue were incredible and empowering. Yeah. Um, Sarabella. Sarabella, excuse me. Thank yeah. you. Thank of you. Course. I love I... this new name, by oh the way. Oh my gosh. No. I'm so in love with Sarabella. This love is that like suit. what I love that look. Yes. <laughs> yeah, can i yeah. just say you you mentioned something a little bit ago about how a lot of this has been you know mutants navigating their relationship with their bodies young mutants especially mm-hmm. and i think that's i mean that's so true on the level that it's written by a non-binary writer and it's mm-hmm. featuring trans mutants whether or not they're trans like you know explicitly on the page we know that they are from the twitter but like why haven't all new mutants runs now that i think about it been about young mutants navigating their relationship with their bodies because i mean that's like puberty for literally everybody well, I think they're touching uh, on that like, like more of, and more. Uh, yeah, they yeah. are. I, I just like this. This whole run has made me realize like this is such a natural fit for a new mutants book. It should always have been about this. Absolutely, completely agreed. Oh yeah. If it's not my favorite run, it's my second favorite run, and my favorite run might only be my favorite run from nostalgia. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, that's fair. Yeah. yeah. Speaking um, of favorite runs, I mean, the when they had this wonderful reunion, I'm like, okay, I'm okay. I'm not yeah. going. Like I'm like. I'm already crying enough, and then this happened, and I'm like, <laughs> "How did we all feel about this reunion between Warpath and Thunderbird?" And like, did it touch y'all's heart as much as mine when you saw that Warpath was the bigger brother now? Yeah, like this, this yes. was some of the most impactful art of the book, and it was mm-hmm. so beautifully done. Jimmy towers over John now, mm-hmm. and yes! I just like started bawling my eyes out, and I couldn't <laughs> believe it. Vita is so intentional with the seeds that they plant they have been planting this scene since Mm -hmm. like the beginning of their run Mm -hmm. with all of warpath's journal entries oh those journal entries are so So, good and that hug where like james is standing like a little kid getting from his big brother and his giant strong arms it was absolutely poetic for me they nailed this scene art and all to be honest like the artist did a phenomenal job oh i loved it yeah when he's getting hugged and he said, I didn't avenge you, I I was oh, like, oh my god. I was yeah. like... Oh, yes. Was anybody else super glad that John and James are clearly two distinct people? Yes. 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 Oh, my god, yes. oh my goodness. Absolutely. Like, uh, recognizably James from Rod Reyes issues, right? And mm-hmm. like, they're they're different men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah, so absolutely. Beautiful. And I love that he talks at him like the older brother. Just shut up. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> 
Yeah, he's the younger brother now, presumably, because he's probably been brought back at about the age he died. Oh, no, 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 no. He will yeah. always, he will always be the older brother. Yes, he will. Because I'm sorry, that's just it's the eldest mindset. Because I am the eldest. So, but yeah, it's the eldest oh. mindset. Oh, All up. <laughs> You know what's fun to me is that he's so kind in this because he's being reunited with his fucking little brother. Right. But I've already heard quite a bit about the upcoming giant size Thunderbird. Mm -hmm. And I know for a fact that he's going to be written as like kind of a mean asshole in that. (laughs) At least that is what they've said. Uh, All right. Nation gets to stay. I don't think he'll be as like flat and dimensionless as he was written. Thank you. you. Right. By Lightween. I would hope (laughs) that there's, there's better writing these days. But I would think he would have more anger, at least initially once he finds out what happened to his whole family and reservation. So that that might explain why he might be having an asshole moment. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. What do we think about the cute little one page uh, reunion between the Snicked family? (laughs) (laughs) It was definitely like needed and it, it resolved a couple of issues that I think was going on between family members. So it was nice to see, actually. Yeah, I really liked it. Yeah, same. I, I like Gabby's just whole, can we be done with being weird? Like, I'm so, that's so relatable. So, <laughs> so relatable. I was not a fan of how Storm was drawn. The face was a no-go. Yeah, I wasn't a fan either. This yeah. little this little upturned button nose bullshit mm-hmm. business? No. Like, I'm sorry, but get more references of African-American women or African women and learn to draw her correctly because this little button nose bullshit is not flying with me i want to you know see what the artist can give us in the future but it it feels a little all over the place Mm -hmm. yeah i agree it is it is a little loose and again i say if you can learn how to draw anoli and cosmar and mutants that have like extremely different features you can learn how to draw a character who has african features because there's more than enough reference photos out there yes i completely agree yeah yeah i I hope sarah bella continues to be uh, kind of a jackass because I always thought Mark was a jackass. She better be. She better be. Yes, I agree. I don't. I hope this does. It's weird because of what I said about John, but I hope this doesn't soften her personality. <laughs> yeah. How do we feel about the resolution of the Shadow King arc with the confrontation between Danny, Rain, Shan, and Shan's girlfriend for some reason in the Shadow King? Uh, I did like that. I thought it was really, really important that Shan didn't absolve Farouk for the things that he inflicted upon her that that she said i i wish you well or whatever like go do your thing don't hurt our people i don't forgive you but like you know go be a person i would have felt differently if she had been like i totally forgive you like all these things are in the past i like that shan is a person who can find it in her heart to like wish him well even like she doesn't have to forgive him but i'm glad that she's still like i do hope that things are better for you Mm -hmm. you know just somewhere away from me well and And she's she's realizing that farouk is a different person than shadow king yeah. Mm-hmm. So, right. Yeah. I love. But, I love that she didn't like completely absolve him and forgive him for it, but she also recognizes he's not the exact same person who did what he did to her. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And he's a, he's a part of that, and he was an instrument of that, and like to some extent, separating the Shadow King and Farouk is hard even for Farouk. But yeah. like, mm-hmm. I love the notions of complicated forgiveness and like the whole talk about like how forgiveness is something that's given, not something that's like deserved or mm-hmm. growth. The shows to Shan as a character just by her being able to do this mm-hmm. and be in this whole arc because last time she was confronted with Shadow King that I remember was Storm Worlds Apart. You will always bring up anytime. 
<laughs> you know, and poor Shan was just paralyzed by the fact that the Shadow King was even there. From that initial... She's so strong now. I know, right? The initial torture that she had, just the strength that she's gotten. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My my one gripe, and it is kind of a big one on this, is again, it's the fat phobia for me. It's the greatly reducing his size and weight. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I, I get that you're a different artist, but making him less fat... It, <sighs> Please don't. Like, we have so few people of weight and of size represented in a book. I don't need him to look like he had a weight loss surgery a couple months ago. Leave leave the fullness of that character. It is not a flaw. It is not a fault. And it feels like, oh, now that he's redeemed, we're going to just slowly shrink him. And I'm like, no. You do make a great point. It's super troubling that, like, he can only be extremely fat when he's evil. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. it's connected with that. I mean, he's not drawn cartoonishly fat which i do appreciate but like he's also yeah that you're absolutely right the switch from like vicious evil character to person getting atonement and the mm-hmm. subsequent weight loss involved is kind of jarring Ooh. and yeah yeah it's well, it's very messed up on marvel codes bigness as 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 evil and has like a long history of doing that mm-hmm. from characters like farouk and the blob and and I mean, I'm I'm a person who's actually lived through this. I went through a weight loss surgery basically because my doctors harassed me into it. It was a very intense weight loss surgery. I can never be the same person again. But they didn't address the reason I have always been heavy. And so that weight came back. So when I lost the weight, people treated me wildly differently and so much nicer and so much more pleasant and more like a person. And when I gained the weight back, I the doctors went right back to treating me like absolute shit so yeah the way people who are fat or who have more weight on their body are treated it's horrific so to see if you're evil you're you know very fat and if we give you any sort of redemption we start reducing your weight overall there was a lot of really good points being tied together and I really enjoyed those I really 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 enjoyed those because we've been waiting almost 24 years issues for some of those issues to be resolved i'm looking forward to what's coming next now that we do have a lot of resolutions and i do know that danilo the artist does beautiful work i do hope that we get to see more of that beautiful work done i'm super excited to see whatever is going to be happening with magic iliana is my girl i trust ayala to take up any of those like extremely difficult nuanced plot lines that are just mm-hmm. lying around yeah mm-hmm. yeah they've done such a great job so far like i, I i'm hoping we get a reformation from eddie prior because damn the girl needs it because she's yes. just been on her whole life like i don't want her to go hero mode but i don't i want her to become a super villain yeah. but a really good one like, yeah like victor creed king of hell yes <laughs> Hey everybody, Nico here again. Now I know we dedicated like a whole bunch of this episode to X-Men Unlimited 13 through 20, and we've talked about issues 1 through 4 and 5 through 12, right? But I'm here to talk a little about number 21. Now, X-Men Unlimited number 21, Downtime, featuring Madrox and Strong Guy, is certainly a breath of fresh air in what started to feel like a very dramatic series. As much as Latitude by Hickman and Shavley, which is getting a sequel in the form of Longitude, the next major arc in X-Men Unlimited, 
had humor in it. There was definitely a lot of drama, abducted mutants, people missing, etc., you know? And then clearly X-Men Green hit some really dramatic notes throughout the course of the series. Paradise Lost, while essentially a fun romp, still dealt with, like, big-scale, end-of-the-world kind of things. So when I saw X-Men Unlimited 21, Downtime, written and with art by Jason Liu and letters by VCs Joe Sabino, looked to be a one-and-done, light, fun story... I was pretty excited. It's not that I didn't enjoy the drama, but it definitely feels like an unlimited Infinity comic is kind of where I hope to just be able to scroll my way to a good time. Now, if I had any sort of misnomer about this issue in any way, it's quite literally the name. I appreciate that it says featuring Madrox. I maybe would have preferred the Madrox family, which is kind of a fun play on the fact that Madrox himself is a multitude of men. But also, Layla and Davey do feature pretty heavily into this story, and Madrox's desire to be a good father is clear here as a part of the narrative. So for that reason, it would have maybe been a little bit more fun to see the Madrox family, but that's just me kind of poking at the title. It's not a huge deal, right? Beyond that initial setup, I want to just comment how phenomenal the art on this issue is. The art here really fits the Infinity comic style. The colors are so powerful and so luscious, and there is a clear thought about how to use the panel space all throughout. We've commented here and there that sometimes people are a little bit too into the conventions of let me play with how the scroll system works. We've commented that sometimes we feel as though perhaps artists don't lean into the Infinity style as much as they could. But here there was a definite balance that didn't feel gimmicky. I felt like Jason Liu placed panels in a way that drew my eye further down. This definitely had an understanding of how to use my time well as a reader. Now, I could not help but notice the number of X-Core drop-ins, which I appreciated. You know, X-Core wasn't my favorite title, perhaps, but I really loved the promise. I loved the ideas behind it. It maybe just felt like it came at a weird time in the X-Men's line, right? So I wonder how much of it is X-Corp didn't really get a fair shake. So seeing these characters continuing to interact the way they did in Teeny Howard's title really has me excited. I'm always here for a Monet appearance, and you know what? Warren flying through the air with a gun, that's quite literally X-Men number one's cover, so you can't come for it. It's just what it is, right? Beyond that, there was also the awesome inclusion of Trinary, who doesn't get anywhere near enough appearances. I think at the end of the day, where this story definitely captured my heart and attention was that it wanted to talk about some of those heavy things that perhaps I said this story skipped over, right? The whole Guido and Madrox's friendship falling apart as Guido became king of hell. You know, there was a real heavy sense of darkness that pervaded throughout X-Factor. Even when X-Factor was kind of like a charming tongue-in-cheek book, it was always charming and tongue-in-cheek with a foreboding sense of sadness always kind of hanging over everyone. And this story, for all of the ways that it's a fun romp at the beach with bright blue blues and luscious pinks and vibrant yellows. This really is a story about two people trying to find a way to communicate, and it really hit a lot of important emotional notes for me. Funny enough, I am also a huge fan of the movie Alien, like Alien is my favorite film franchise of all time, and so I loved the reference to the Nostromo. That was a great drop-in for me. 
Now, I've made a number of references to the fact that I appreciated that this had a one-and-done attitude about it, though it does say at the very end to be continued in issue 27, so I have to assume that issues 22, 23, 24, 25, and 26 are going to be Longitude by Declan Shavley, which is already starting to come out with issue number 22, and I perhaps think that this is the kind of not one-and-done that's okay. There's a real sense of it's not the end of the world with whatever just popped up in the little alien monster bubble baby dolphin adorable things if i had a favorite thing about this issue it's that it felt different than other things i was reading we commented that x-men green felt very much like a teen marauders title we felt that unlimited 13 through 20 reflected a lot of what was going on elsewhere in krakoan titles it was just really nice to jump into a light fun adventure yeah it probably could have been anybody's issue and anybody could have started in it to success but i feel like by making it the these characters that we all care about, Jason Liu has really tapped into something that is going to set this story apart from other X-Men Unlimited entries, especially if it winds up being one of the only kind of short-form entries, though I really do hope that this series hits 200 issues over the next couple of months. I just hope they never stop popping these out. They make me so happy to just pick up my phone once a week and just scroll through an adventure of the X-Men. Now, on to an X-Men adventure that you read by flipping, not scrolling. X-Men Legends has continued to be one of Josh's favorite titles here, and so we're going to cover it forever, but, you know, we love it too. We hope you guys enjoy this last segment. Until next time, guys, we love making this show for you three times a week, every week. We've got Magic Mondays, X-Men X Wednesdays, and Marvel Fanfare Fridays. So until next time, enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, it's not X-Men unless it's unlimited, and we'll see ya. Welcome back to another segment of X is for podcast. This week, we're here talking about X-Men Legends 11, or as I like to call it, New Mutant 76 and a half. This is a follow-up to X-Men Legends 3 and 4, as well as the New Mutants part of Inferno. And that one issue after Inferno, where the X-Factor kids and the New Mutant kids all become one ginormous group of awesome, and they still have teeny Ileana because they don't go out to bring her back to her family and then gets rolled back to Asgard for the not as good as the first time, second time, until New Mutant 77. This is written by Grandma, Louise Simonson, with art by Grandpa, Walt Simonson. We get colors by Edgardo Delgado and letters by John Workman. With me today is Evelyn. Hey guys, I'm Evelyn the Comic Canary. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at comic underscore canary. And Steven. Hi all, uh, this is Steven. You can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and on Facebook as the admin for House of North Star. And I'm Josh Wheel. You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L, and at asleepatthewheel.com. And from now until November 8th, 2022, as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate here in Florida, you can find me across social media at Wheel, the number four U.S. Senate, and at joshwheel.org. So just just to kind of start off on a little tangent, I, I love, after I read the credits for us, when I was putting the credits together for this episode, that we get a double dose of credits in the issue because uh, Grandpa Walt and the old heads built it into the title page the way they always used to but the editors had to give us our modern like data slash character page that have credits on it as well so we get old both old school and new school credit pages i mean i was such a fan when i saw that it really brought me back 
It's how he lays out title pages. It is so 80s and perfect. Like in this story, the kids take Ileana to see the brave little toaster. Then Rusty and Skids take Tiny Yana home, which makes me so sad because I love Rusty and Skids. I am on record as just wanting more Skids all the time. But alas, the rest head to an arcade where they encounter some of the remaining Morlocks being chased by Caliban, Famine, and War. And now they're looking for a new pestilence because Apocalypse needs to make the mutant stronger to survive the upcoming Judgment War from the Celestials, which is about to happen in X-Factor 43 through 50, but not 47. The kids get whooped by the horsemen because Danny's Valkyrie powers on like a really awesome page uh, show her that if they all go off, then they're going to collapse the Morlock tunnels and die. Then even more surviving Morlocks show up and Mask does Mask things and Healer does Healer things and Feral's there in like a cool pre-first appearance appearance that might actually be the first time I've ever been happy to see Feral. And the kids win and they all go on their merry ways. And in the end of the issue, it's basically the beginning of New Mutant 77. I even went and I had to like pull out New Mutant 77 and check it out and look at it afterwards. And so like the final page of this is Danny getting on her flying horse Bright Wind and the kids getting into like warlock shaped as like an airplane to like fly off to bring Yana to Russia. And the opening page of New Mutant 77 is they're like flying through a storm because Danny's on Bright Wind and the kids are in warlock shaped as a plane and they're on their way to Russia. So it just like this is an absolute perfect leave no gap fit right up until 77. Like, these are casts of kids that Wheezy built, right? Wheezy had been on X Factor since issue six all the way up until practically the end. Wheezy was on New Mutants from 51 up until just before the end, about a year before the end when Fabian Nicieza took over. She had been writing these teams of youth. X Factor put together their own whole, like, youth team that they had for a while that built of Rusty and Skids and Boom Boom and Richter. We had the New Mutants kids that Wheezy had been writing as well through this time through Inferno and was writing. So she brought all of her kids together here. And she so she slotted this in perfectly with like all of her characters between her marks. Not only did Wheezy tie back to like her original runs on X Factor New Mutants, but she brought this back and tied it into her earlier X-Men Legends story three and four. You know, X-Men Legends is a series that was kind of originally pitched as the untold stories, like the things writers had threaded or wanted to tell and never got to finish and we've gotten like one of those and next month we're actually going to get a second but so i like that it's doing more than just regrouting some of the cracks here right and that's something that i've been enjoying just in general with the x-men legends is they fit so nicely like in those like little gaps um and it's just it's able to tell like new stories with old stories and it's just it's so delightful I'm actually new to the X-Men Legends line at the moment, but I thoroughly enjoyed the issue. It brought me back. I'm not always a huge fan of nostalgia, but this was a definite exception to the rule. I have to say that a lot of these characters are some of my absolute favorites. I was excited to see Caliban. I've always been weirdly obsessed with Autumn Rolfson, the androgynous Fabian. Yes, I am obsessed with Tabitha. So seeing Tabitha in this this issue from back in her original appearance runs like was such such a fun trip down memory lane for me this is a more bubbly tabitha before she started drinking away her pain yes doing for a very long time like that's not a new thing tab tabitha has been 
questionably alcoholic for a solid 20 plus years now. So these are definitely like, go back and read through Wheezy's X Factor run if you want to see like the pickup. <laughs> I will absolutely have to do so because when I first started reading comic books, I think Next Wave came out relatively soon afterwards and I fell in love with her. And so ever since then, anything she's been in, I've I've like just absorbed. I've just been so excited to read. So I'll have to definitely do that. I love Wheezy's re-emphasizing the context around Apocalypse from her X-Factor run because there's been a lot of arguments since Hoxpox about how you should read Apocalypse in that X-Factor run. Because, you know, Apocalypse was the bad guy and then was taken by the writers and done other things, most of which didn't really make sense. It was this weird, like, Darwinian survival of the fittest, but like, gonna gotta kill everyone or take, like, it didn't, there aren't a lot of good Apocalypse stories. Like, (laughs) I think the point we make the most is that the most famous and beloved Apocalypse story is Age of Apocalypse, which has extraordinarily little apocalypse in it it is really about everything else it really is about anything else than apocalypse which is pretty hilarious i was so so stoked for for um for classic apocalypse in this but i was able to see it through the lens of hoxpox and i feel like he's it gave me a lot of like um context for how he is in Hoxpox, if that makes so sense it's there though like if you read the fall of the mutants arc which is by most considered to be the the best apocalypse story pre-hoxpox the best of wheezy's run i think the other big apocalypse and great x-factor story from there would be endgame which chris claremont wrote and so those are your two big apocalypse stories and so wheezy's fall of the mutants he extends the hand out like he tells them them that like they need to build a stronger mutant nation like that the mutants need to like have their own separate place that they need to be stronger for what's coming and that he wants to lead them and he wants all the mutants to come like he invites the x-men to his side like he doesn't want to fight them or kill them he's not that like it is it is perfectly in line with krakoa like if you read that and then you go to hoxpox you a thousand percent understand why he takes xavier's hand the rest of the mutants came around to his way in between Fall of the Mutants and House of X Powers of Ten. It fits so well with the classic run and I also think which I love that you mentioned that it was like so perfectly entwined with 77 uh, but I really really enjoyed reading this because it felt like it felt like a classic comic but the commentary was so now the apocalypse that we saw in X-Men Legends of was how I perceive him in Hoxpox. And I don't have a ton of Apocalypse stories under my belt that I've read, but when I read the, the Hoxpox story, it wasn't that far of a stretch for me to see what was happening with him and why he was doing what he was doing. I've recently been going back and reading more about him, but this story itself was just so much fun with seeing Apocalypse and then War and Famine. But it was really fun. This was Wheezy's book. Apocalypse was a main antagonist built into it from early on that she kind of took over and had to like someone else was laying the, it was Bob Layton was laying the, 
groundwork and, and then she reshaped it and made it her kind of big bad through most of her run. But once Claremont ties him to Baby Cable, Baby Nathan, in Endgame 65 through 68, it becomes a whole different thing because Apocalypse's stories really become Cable stories from there on out. All of the big kind of seeding of Apocalypse that we get afterwards comes in things like Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. Well, it is like the epic battle through time of Cable and Apocalypse. Everything else aside from that is really not good. Like there's Age of Apocalypse AU stuff or, you know, there's the 12, which was like a tease thing in this run. There's a lot of Apocalypse, which happened in the main X-Men run post Morrison. There's a reason why Apocalypse just kind of like went off the table for a while because... It, it just wasn't good until Hoxpox. And then it all became so good. And, and it started being apocalypse centric. Like when we got him back now, it is not tied to cable. Like everything we got from apocalypse moving forward is not tied to cable. So going back to the pre end game part of apocalypse, like Wheezy gets to really flourish on that as well. And like really play in that apocalypse, not tied to cable part, which is when, he's going to be great when he actually gets like agency. And that's why I love like Apocalypse post Hawksbox. It's been really great. But yeah, like Apocalypse just wasn't, I always felt he had potential but never utilized properly from like a lot of his stories. But that's why I love the X of Swords runs because, or Ten of Swords or whatever. And it was just a lot of fun to like see him finally utilize properly. And even though he's kind of off the table right now, I feel like whenever he comes back on the table there's going to be a lot more use for him and a lot more fun for him like dark ages right now has been really interesting so i'm, I'm curious what is going to happen moving forward now that things have finally like gotten better with his character yeah i am so excited to see him come back because even though i do think we got like a fairly complete story for him i just don't think his story is finished i really want to see him back i actually would really love to see war famine and pestilence the originals that we had seen come back as well since we have the resurrection protocols maybe see what they looked like before apocalypse altered them into the horsemen who knows maybe if that's even possible do you think he altered his kids or do you think that that's just what him and genesis's babies look like i mean there's pretty (laughs) have such ugly babies (laughs) i would have to agree with that Absolutely. And and you know what? This story actually gives good reason to bring them back. I am a huge fan of this X-Men Legends series. Um, I know that it is... It definitely gets split off into its own little, like, stepbrother, stepcousin kind of of the X-Line category because it is not in main present continuity. But... I love the original concept. I loved the first two issues where we know, like Fabian Nicieza has been saying for years that he was threading things with Adam X and then that he hated the, like they took it and they did Vulcan and they did other things that like, cause he had a story he was specifically telling. So I love that they got to go back and do that. And it was a shame cause we kind of knew like, okay, if you're going to have big revelation, it's got to be followed by mind wipes and reasons why like none of the characters remember. And, and like, yeah. hopefully, yeah. hopefully, 
every issue of X-Men Legends doesn't end with a mind wipe. You can pick up X-Men Legends even as a new reader. And because of the current era of comics, you don't need to know every single one of them. But you have current storylines with a lot of these characters. You have the New Mutants who are in the New Mutants current book. You have Richter. You have Apocalypse. You have Mask in Marauders. Like, you don't need to go back and look up who these people are. You're reading them in the current era. So this was fantastic for for old and for new readers, in my in my opinion. Yeah, and the pages in the front really help, especially in X-Men Legends. Giving us all of these characters so people can kind of wiki hunt or remember or look up makes it so much easier than if you're just like literally picking up like an 80s issue of New Mutants and you're like, wait, who the fuck was that? The only one they might be confused about is probably Ileana. <laughs> Everyone remembers chicken wings. Um... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so <laughs> I like that this is late 80s and not 90s because 90s for me, 90s Marvel, I should say, because I and I look at 90s DC as like the golden age of DC. 90s Marvel is the quintessential like not great, but I love it comics. But, like, there's a lot that's not, like, great comic book storytelling. Like, it was definitely a big art era. When we think of, like, expansion of image and, you know, we got to see Marvel house style change from, like, Jim Lee based to Joe Mad based. Some really interesting, cool things with art coming forward from, like, the previous house art style that was probably more, like, early JRJR style. See, for me, actually, a, uh, the funny thing about it is that a lot of people are so drawn in by the 90s art. That's actually a little bit where it lost me in the 90s. Uh, the One of the few things that I really loved about the 90s was actually Gen X. That's the thing that I actually, I, I can say for a fact that I and read. Chris Bocciolo! Chris Bocciolo, art is the I do think that classic Bacalo is phenomenal. His art, I will always remember that that first opening page of Penance with the butterfly. Like his art was so beautiful and fit that book so well. And that's what I associate the 90s with. Chris Bacalo definitely created problems across Marvel because he was like so successful and good. And one of the major Chris Bocciolo problems was that he would create characters that no one else could draw. And then other people had to try to draw them as those characters continued or in other books or as he left and went yeah. on to another project. And, yes. and there's some rough art. Like, there's rough art on Bocciolo characters not drawn by Bocciolo because no one else can, like, make that work. Like, even Sugar Man, who, like, is, I think, easier to draw. Like, Sugar Man drawn by anyone other than Chris Bocciolo just looks like the pig from uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. I actually fully see that, and that just makes me love Sugar Man even more. So I was a little disappointed at first when I popped this one, because when I got it, I've been seeing all the ads for the Chris Claremont X-Men Legends coming up, and I was like, yes! And then I was like, oh, there's a wheezy one in between. And this was great, so I have no issues. But next month in X-Men Legends 12, we are going to get a lost story. For those who don't know, after Rachel Gray Summers left Uncanny X-Men in 209, and before Excalibur Mojo Mayhem, we did not get any Rachel. There, there was no Rachel Phoenix in between. And so 
there was originally not just a planned there was i believe that it even like started like it was pre-solicited like they talked about it in 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 magazines they did interviews about it there was a phoenix miniseries that was supposed to come out pre pre mojo mayhem that had spiral as the bad guy i believe two issues of it were drawn by mark silvestri and this was supposed to be like a rachel storyline that was going to like kind of pave and lead the way into excalibur and bring her over and do a lot of rachel back backstory stuff and it just it never made it like there were behind the scenes things and it got scrapped and it kind of then it started like it was going to get turned into something else that also got like lost story scrapped and and eventually they just like they just picked up with mojo mayhem like fuck it here's where the pieces are like spirals here and rachel and spiral have like you know this antagonistic with like they've got history you, you didn't read about it but we're just moving forward so i'm excited for chris claremont doing a pre-excalibur story because i know that he had stuff he wrote and started to write and it's one of the few things that claremont has not gone back because chris claremont has had like a million and one opportunities to go back and retell x-men stories without this x-men legend series as like the vehicle for it but the fact that he is finally going back and telling one of these that was super hyped like you can find preview art and images and like magazine articles and you know letters column hints and you know for this thing coming out in the the late 80s online so i'm excited that we're going to get a look into that next month and last thoughts on x-men legends 11 it was fun it was just plain fun it was nice to see like all of these characters i have soft spots for just kind of showing up and doing their thing and being just so just fun i that's the only word i can really describe it as fun <laughs> yeah uh, to echo on to evelyn i agree it was fun it was straightforward it was nostalgic but not in an overbearing way it gave you a nice hit of the characters as you knew them you know around when you started reading comics or when you started going back and reading classic comics if you were newer to the franchise so i was really excited and i'm actually gonna go back uh and read the rest of the issues because this convinced me that i i need my fill of some classic stories you know this fits right in between 76 and 77 and then you know i mean read it with both of those you know i've read them not too long back so i didn't read fully in uh this time but this group of young characters was fantastic and you know it was unfortunately like this got too big for all of the new mutants and x-factor kids to all be in like vita's current new mutants run because there's also like what are we doing with like there's all the gen x kids like there's so many layers groups of expansive kids the academy x kids there's a million of them i really like that you know we get these opportunities and even if it's a slighter story that you know we do get to dive in and the era appropriate art and paneling designs and everything just make it make it feel right to me i love x-men legends like i'm on this book month to month easy easy peasy i'm definitely here for the nostalgia like even if it's something like i'm not overly familiar with i still really enjoy it and i enjoy this older style because it's what i grew up reading anyway so it's still something fun for me i love that delightful i think is the best word for this series x-men legends yeah for is sure delightful 